Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show. If you are watching this, it is baby time in the Serafin household. So I don't know what day it is, but I do know that you are in for a real treat. I taped this interview a couple of days ago with Mickey Willis, who is a filmmaker who created the Plandemic series, the Plandemic 1, 2, and 3 are the three movies that he created. They're available free at plandemicseries.com, I believe. We'll flash it on the bottom here for sure. It'll be in the show notes. And what I'll tell you is this, it's a uniquely appropriate interview because this was one of the most hopeful and energetic, low-key conversations. I walked away from it feeling good, and I hope you do as well. I hope you really enjoy this. I think that this is going to be an impactful conversation for you. It certainly was for me when I walked away. I had no idea what I was getting into. And we don't talk very much about pandemics or pandemics or anything else. What we talk about is messaging, is about hypnotism about families, about values, and about the journey that we all go through in life. And maybe as we start to see the plan, there's a little bit more logic there. There's a little bit more sense than any of us would have anticipated at any given point, including the lowest points. So if you are at a low point right now, I encourage you to watch this all the way through. I think it will bring you a sense of peace. And uh, watch to the end. There's a little twist because I asked if it was about hope and Mickey corrected me. And I think, uh, I think he was correct at the end. So kick around for this. This is going to be a two-part episode. You guys will get a big chunk of it up front and I think uh, even more intense dose at the end here. Thanks for sticking with us. Let me say a real quick thank you to my friends over at Patriot Coolers. There they are right there, Patriot Coolers. If you want to go use our promo code, you can type in promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. You can get anything that they have on the site for 10% off. If you spend 50 bucks, the shipping is free. It's a great deal. They have great products. They are a good American company out of Houston, Texas. Many of their things may have to be made overseas, but that's only because we have a corrupt and bizarre system that does not allow them to produce them in this country. That is not a Patriot Coolers decision. That is a federal government decision and an EPA decision. It's why we need conservatives in office. So go to patriotcoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. Get that 10% off. and That lets them know that you were sent from the Kyle Serafin Show. Promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. And uh, while I'm at it, let me just say a quick thank you as well to Catholic Vote. There they are. Sign up for the loop. Head to catholicvote.org. Catholicvote.org will give you the loop every morning in your email box without fail. 5 a.m., 6 a.m., depending on where you live. 6 a.m. over there on the East Coast, you'll get a good dose of what is happening in the world. Just punch in that email, punch in your first and last name, if you like, and a, a zip code so they can... Tune it to your location, catholicvote.org. Really big fan of those guys. That great email from The Loop. And more importantly, they really have been a fantastic supporter of us here in the Seraphim household. So, folks, stay tuned for this interview. Here it comes right now. And we really do appreciate you watching. If you haven't hit the thumbs up yet, you're going to want to do that pretty soon. So go ahead and scroll down on rumble.com slash Kyle Seraphin and hit that like button, y'all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to welcome our guest today, Mickey Willis. He is the investigative filmmaker behind the series Plandemic 1, 2, and 3, which you can find at plandemicseries.com. He's out of Austin, Texas, just like us, although he's on the other side of the uh, the city. And we're going to bring him in, and we got some questions about the pandemic, about the term pandemic, and, and who he is as a filmmaker, how he got into that. So, uh, Mickey, welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show. Thanks so much. Good to be here. 
All right, my friend. So I want to start with the basics. I always like to know the view, the lens that people are kind of viewing the world. Can you tell me about where you grew up and how you ended up uh, deciding to be a filmmaker? Grew up in Sacramento, California, born and raised there. Moved to Los Angeles when I was 19. Starry-eyed kid. The story we've all heard, stepped off the bus and and into the maze of Hollywood and and did my best to survive that for a number of years until I realized that being in front of the camera wasn't really where I wanted to be. I didn't know I wanted to be a filmmaker. I didn't uh, really have that possibility alive in my family and my lineage. So there was nothing there to show me that that was even possible uh, until I got in front of the camera and I realized I was paying much more attention to what the lighting guys were doing and the camera people were doing. Um, than my job in front of the camera. So I swiftly left that position and began to study and built my own theater in Los Angeles when I was 23 years old and started writing and directing theatrical performances and uh, did that for a number of years until that uh, theater was damaged in the, the Northridge earthquake. And, um, and I left that to begin directing actually infomercials. That was my first parlay into directing filmed entertainment. And in the heyday of infomercials, uh, I was invited to direct a co-direct an, in, an infomercial for Vitamix. And uh, that was really this, the first the blender company, that, the blender company. Yes. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so that was really the first parlay into being behind the camera. And I didn't go to film school. I'm, I'm glad I didn't. Um, I hire people around me who did so they understand all the lingo and all of it technical stuff that I didn't learn, but I'm glad as an artist that I did not, because I think that like uh, many educations, it can create kind of a cookie cutter mindset that has you uh, stuck in a bunch of rules. And uh, it's what's kind of funny, the, the legacy of my work for years, I uh, critics have called my work um, unique and innovative. And uh, most of the time I have no idea what they're talking about. It's usually because I don't know the rules. So I, I end up doing what you're not supposed to do. And they say, that's gutsy. And I said, no, it's just, I don't, I didn't know that I was even breaking a rule because I don't know the rules. And so through the years I've, I've, I've made my own and certainly have uh, found my own formula, but um, that's, that's what led me into, uh, you know, at least getting behind the camera. And then as I became more concerned about the state of our world, the state of the state that I lived in and, and our social issues that were going on. I, I was teaching uh, a class, a performing arts class in uh, Compton, California. So I was deeply involved in racial issues. And um, particularly when the Los Angeles riots broke out, that, that got me really involved in speaking with the communities and trying to figure out why there was so much racial tension. And, and that uh, gradually led me into the world of politics and, um, and doing what I'm doing now. Very interesting that uh, we have some overlap there. I, I actually also grew up in the Bay Area and then uh, I've got family in San, uh, San Francisco and, and Sacramento, things like that. And I actually ended up working for Warner Brothers a little bit when I first got out of college, kind of a, a strange little thing. I lived in Burbank. So mm -hmm. I'm sure we've got some some places in common that cross paths. Were you were you always a political guy growing up in California no. or was that in your, your sphere of influence? No, I, was, I wanted nothing to do with politics. And uh, the first time I ever voted was voting for Obama. It was the first time that a politician spoke and I was moved and I thought, what a beautiful family man. And, you know, three, four years later, I was questioning where the hope and change was. And 
upset that there were six new wars and I'd been suckered into the game of politics. And, and, uh, and so I, um, thought I <laughs> thought I smartened up and next thing I know I'm on the road supporting Bernie Sanders and, uh, all of it was divine. You know, I don't, um, I have a rule in life the the old cliche that life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. And so I, I look at all of that as my training ground so that I can understand what I understand today. I had to go to the other side of the spectrum. I had to be fooled. I had to experience what that felt like. I had to see the other side behind the curtain and, um, and to realize that, uh, you know, there is a, a really dirty game called politics that is out to capture our attention and, and own it. And, um, I equate our attention to the rudder of a ship. It literally is the thing like our, our, our attention has been hijacked. And that's why I learned this through years of, um, working with high level ad executives and boardrooms with people who get paid a lot of money to create campaigns for major products and realizing as I was a young filmmaker and I would have an opportunity to come pitch because I wanted to direct a car commercial or whatever it might be. And I would come in with a, all this research on the product and, and a, you know, what I thought was a really classy, beautiful concept. And it would always get thrown out because all they wanted to do is just, just get some chicks in bikinis. And, and at the end of it, we'll say Honda. You know, it's like, what, what does that have to do with the car? I don't understand this. And it's like, no, we just want their attention. You know, that girls in bikinis get attention or, you know, we have to convince the people that they're not complete and that our project, you know, will complete them. So that's what we really want to hear is how to, so it was really all about this really high level um, manipulation of the mind. And I started to get very involved in ontological research that really the study of being and to try to figure out, um, what's going on with humanity? What's going on with us? What's going on with me? And how, how did I get led into two political situations that I now can see clearly, but at that point I couldn't see at all. I was, you know, I was hypnotized. And if you've seen the great awakening, you see that I opened the movie with that story that, um, that, that was the beginning of my true political awakening was when I asked the question, am I hypnotized? And that's when I started to just the, just the asking of that question, which I'd never done before. I never had a reason to ask myself if I were hypnotized, who, who does that, right? Unless you start to realize, I know I'm smarter than this and I know I'm street smart, but yet I'm, I'm getting suckered into something <laughs> twice now that I didn't even see coming. So what part of my mind has been captured such that I can't perceive the things that I normally would perceive out in the world? And how are they doing this? How do they do this to me? You know, And, and the answer is um, incrementally, and through everything, through every billboard and every commercial and, and all the different ways that all of the narratives have been captured to influence our choices and the direction of our future. Maybe you could talk a little more about the advertising world, especially coming out of the infomercial sort of background, right? So that's kind of a, a splash. We got to grab your attention as I understand it. You know, I, I grew up watching the same infomercials everyone else did where they show you an incredible product and an amazing claim. And then they show you a bunch of really flashy visuals. And at the end of it, you know, it's only 1995 and it's however many payments and, and this is going to change your life. How does that move into sort of the higher level, you know, big narratives that we're hearing in this country? Like, how do you see the parallels working there? Yeah. Well, it's all a primer for the mass hypnosis that so many people are stuck in right now. We don't realize to the degree that advertising, the damage that it's done to our collective psyche, 
because it's just there all the time. It's, it's everywhere we go. It's on those little dividers at the checkout stand. It's everywhere that there's a blank space. They fill it with advertising. And so even when we're not looking at it, we're seeing it. And that's something that people don't realize. That there's a, so, so many subliminal things happening that our mind is always, always being bombarded with what they want us to see and think. And that, that can affect even the strongest willed people. I, I'm a real stubborn guy, you know, like I'm a strong headed person. If I know something's right, there's nothing you can show me unless it's really hard evidence. I'm not stubborn to the point of any longer. I'm not study. I'm not stubborn to the point of not being open to real evidence. Um, but if there's something that I know to be real, uh, you can't convince me that it's not. And if there's something I know to be unreal, you can't convince me that it's real. And yet I, I realize even, you know, having that um, armor, I'm, I find myself susceptible all the time to the suggestion of just realizing that, you know, wow, I wasn't hungry a moment ago, but somehow I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. Oh God, I just, I just heard a commercial. I just saw this little thing, this thing flashed in my mind. And, you know, they outlawed what they call subliminal advertising years ago, which was just a, a frame or two that they'd flash in a movie theater. They'd run these little, you know, ad for the next movie, but within it, there'd be a flash of popcorn. And next thing you know, the audience wouldn't even see, perceive it with their eyes, but they'd go, you want some popcorn? I'm going to go get some popcorn. Okay, cool. And it would work because suddenly this imagery stays in the mind and then the mind toys with that until it can smell the popcorn and taste it. And next thing you know, your taste buds are going, yeah, you know, I, I could use some satisfying right now. And, and then you're buying their product. And a very similar thing happens, but it's even more sinister in, in, out in the world because, and it becomes more and more sinister as people become more immune. The more ads there are, are around us, the harder it is to get people's attention because there's just so much now, so much eye candy that we don't really even look at it anymore. You know, look at all the ads that pop up as we're scrolling through YouTube stuff. We don't really, we wait for that five second timer to tick out and then we skip. We right. don't even pay attention to it. So what do they do to get our attention? They have to be really loud and really shocking. And the downside to that, it's kind of what's happening with the demoralization from TikTok and YouTube and all the stuff that's happening to our young people and, and all ages really where they're being incentivized and rewarded to be shocking. You know, I have two young boys and they asked me a little while ago, they said, dad, can we have a, our friend has a YouTube channel? Can we? And I said, absolutely. No. I said, why? Because you know, we're there. I have good, great kids. And I said, you're, it's not you that I'm worried about. It's the influence of understanding that once you start to release videos and first of all, it gets you addicted to being liked. That's why the buttons and the user experience is like and follow because when you become addicted to being liked and being liked as a currency, then you start to self-censor. You start to do whatever it takes to increase your likes. It's, it's like a dopamine hit, right? You get, wow, I had a video that got a million views. How much more shocking do I have to be to get 2 million views? Let me keep going until you've lost all, all foundation of your moral principles. And that's the goal. It's all demoralization. And so I told my boys, there's no way because I trust you, but no, no one's strong enough really to survive that and to not be not to be affected by it in, to some degree that it will just happen to you guys i said i love you too much to 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 allow, allow this to affect your beautiful little minds in such a way that next thing you know you're you're trying to be shocking because you realize you got rewarded for that one shocking video and um 
and this happened with my uh, my friend's son where he said he put out a video that he didn't think he should he should put out because it was just kind of stupid and it was just like him slapping another friend in the face or something like that and they shouldn't even have put it on his youtube channel right he goes but it got the most views it got like sixteen thousand views so do you want to do a video we do slapping videos and we slap and i said and my son came home and he goes dad he goes i i see what you mean now he goes because this kid he, he goes suddenly went from doing his innocent stuff to like now he wants to do slapping videos just because he's people love to see people get slapped and i said that's how it starts bud next thing you know that's all normalized for you. So you take it to the next. Let's, now let's deck each other in the face. Let's see if we can cause each other to bleed. Oh, okay, that gets old. What do we do next? Let's jump off a building and see if we can survive. It just get, goes more extreme. And I said, and this is, this is part of the warfare that we're experiencing right now. It is calculated war. It is Sun Tzu, the art of war, to, des to destroy an enemy from within, to defeat an enemy without fighting, to turn the enemy against itself so that it kills itself. And that's what we're living through right now. So a couple of things you just said really resonated with me. No, number one, if everybody wants to do the thought experiment of just imagining, imagining, you know, sort of a fluffy, buttery popcorn at the movie theater, you can hear it popping, you can smell it, and you can think of how salty it tastes and suddenly you realize, oh, my mouth is watering. I'm thinking about popcorn mm -hmm. and you're not hungry and you don't want popcorn. And so that obviously is very a successful technique. It's been used for a long time. The same way as, you know, a red juicy steak that's, you know, mouth watering and all the other words that we've always heard. And these things conjure up images that make us go a certain place, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part one. The second thing you talked about is the escalation of stupidity. I think is what I would call it on the YouTube thing, right? Looking for those likes. Uh, and, and I got to grow up seeing that. I never had any interest in it, but there was a show called Jackass. These guys made a career out of it. They made millions of dollars beating the hell out of each other and uh, and really doing serious damage to their bodies, I think, probably to their intellect and their and to their souls at the end. Yeah. So how do, you know, you're out there keeping your kids away from it. I think that's the right instinct. I do the same. How do we, you know, is there a, an armor that you could walk in? Because we can't get away from the world where we're going to be barraged by this stuff. No. So how do you, how do you insulate yourself from that sort of, maybe insidious evil that insidious creeping in that narrative that comes in well i can tell you how i how i help my children make the highest choices in a world that's constantly tempting them away from their highest choices and that is uh, first and foremost i teach them through what they want and not through what i want or what their mother wants for them that's a very important thing and a mistake that most parents make where it's, I need you to do this. I want you to be, I want your room to be more clean. I want you to, um, and the kids have values. They have goals. They have wants and desires. And you have to understand the psychology of, one thing to really understand is our first communication that we learned was we became hungry as new infants and the hunger caused an involuntary reaction, which was crying. And then we were given this soft thing called a nipple and we had the food and the soothing that we needed. And then two hours later, we did it again and we got it again. And then two hours later we went, oh, oh, I'm learning here. I get, oh, okay. So our first line of getting what we want is actually through the process of manipulation. So we're using our emotions. We learn, okay, I can cry and then I get what I want. And we later when crying becomes uncool, we start to manipulate emotionally in other ways. And so if you understand that we're constantly doing things to get what we want in this life, then you can understand that that's a very powerful way to, to teach our children. You say, I, I want to help you get what you want. I want, I want 
you to have what you want if it's something that's actually good for you. And I want you to have that. And so let's start looking at, I can tell you now from an elder position, from somebody who's lived a lot more life than you have, I can tell you the mistakes that I made and how many times I went the long route when I could have just taken the short route and obtained what I wanted much faster with much less suffering. Um, but I didn't have this instructions in my life. I didn't have a father in my life to tell me these things. And so I took the long route on, on most things. I, I don't regret that. And so in that understanding that, I also don't want to rob you of your experience and your right to fail because it's important. It teaches us character and grit. So I don't want to insulate you from learning the do's and don'ts of life. But I'm going to offer you each way a, a clear directive that lets you know this is the short path directly to what you want. And this is the long path. Choose. It's up to you. That's your life. That's that's your life experience that you get to choose. And I'll be here for you no matter what path you choose. But but understand there's a choice. There's always a choice. And so um, uh, and then it's also understanding that the mind is meant to learn through symbology, through through visuals. That's why movies are so, so important. You, you get 24 frames to 30 frames a second, 30 pictures per second flashing in front of your mind. And that's why they're so important because that's how the brain was taught to learn through symbology, through imagery. Mm -hmm. And so uh, most parents don't use that enough. I use a lot of metaphor with my children and visual metaphor. So I'll, I'll tell you one quick one that um, has become quite popular within our family and, and friends' families because there's a big issue, uh, particularly with boys in video games. It's just, it's such a luring drug that um, you give them a tiny bit of time, which is all my wife and I have ever allowed, yet they just want more. And I didn't get this until we were at a water park one day and my son, we were there for like two hours and he goes, how much longer are we gonna be here, dad? And I go, well, all day, why, what, what's going on? He said, oh, I just really wanted to get home. And I went, you wanna go home? We're at a water park, man, it's hot outside, what's going on? <laughs> So what's really going on? And my kids are really honest with me. He goes, well, I have half hour left on Minecraft. I'm like, wow, you want to sacrifice the rest of your day at a water park for 30 minutes on Minecraft. Interesting. That's the lure of this. So we had to draw back and, and start changing um, the way we allow our kids to inter interact with this. And so one day I, I realized, I said, I don't want to, <clears throat> particularly with what we just lived through, I don't want to teach my children to just bow to authority. I don't want, I'm not the dad that says, do it because I said so. That's now you're teaching them to not logically respect the choice and understand the choice. Just do it because someone bigger than you, more powerful than you said, do it. What age bracket are your, are your kids that are they're, making these decisions? Right now they're nine and 12. They just turned nine and 12. Okay. So out of curiosity, before you get too yeah. deep into that, when did you start going with the, I'm going to let you choose your path and I'm going to give you kind of the two options as I see it. What, what age bracket did you, you dive into that? Five or six, each of them five or six, you know, okay. and, and I've got a six-year-old right now. So I'm just trying to, I'm kind of yeah. gauging how the response looks. Obviously there's a yeah. four-year-old doesn't do real well with that. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, it, it, you grow with it, you know, you know how much rope to give them. And yep. so you grow with it and you realize this is too much to, to put on a little guy to make choices like this. And, and then as they get a little bit older, you realize they're, they're more and more capable of making responsible choices. Um, and, and the way that I found, we reached a point where I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm hearing both of us raise our voice too much. And that's not cool because I know what happens. They're going to rebel against our voice. And our voice right now holds a lot of power. The boys really listen to us and they really respect us. And I don't want to ever cross that bridge where suddenly 
Now the voice is just noise and it's a nuisance and whatever, dad, I don't want to reach that. We don't have to reach that. Some people think that's just a normal, that's just a natural process, but it's not, it's become normal, but we're also very confused between what's normal and what's natural. It's not natural. Um, in other cultures, the older a parent got until even grandparents, the, the, the younger generations gained more respect for them because they were actually taught that the older you are, the wiser you are. In our culture, it's the older you are, the more you know, detached you are from anything cool. And, and um, you don't understand the iPhone, so you can't be that cool. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I, I sat down with my boys one night. And I said, you know, honey, I don't want to do this where we're just constantly telling them, you know, they can't have something that they love. So I sat down and I said, hey, guys, I want to tell you a little story. And I said, um, first of all, I want you to picture a virgin wheat field. And my little guy goes, what's virgin mean? I said, it means untouched. Like no one's ever walked in that field. I said, like, just picture it. Sun's going down, golden wheat field. And I said, I want you to picture crossing that wheat field, walking through it once. What happened to that wheat field? And they both got to be trampled. And I said, yeah, but it would come back. You know that, right? Like in a couple hours, the, the wheat would just pop back up and that's what it does with gravity. And it would do its job and it would spring right back up. But if you walked that wheat field every day for a year and then all the animals started to follow your path because that's what happens and other people started to follow your path, pretty soon, just like the hiking trails we've been on, it would become a permanent dirt path and the, the wheat would just give way to that and it would never come back again. So that's what happens. You have neural pathways in your mind. And anything you do on a repetitive basis, basis digs a, a rut. The deeper, the more you do, the longer per day you go, the deeper that rut be, becomes. And these people, my boys are really keyed into what's really going on in the world. I don't hold anything back from them. Mm -hmm. I said, these people that are trying to get into your mind and indoctrinate you and turn you against your country and your family and all of that, they are designing these games to create that rut. And then they know exactly what rut to channel their information into. So you actually lose dominion over the choices of that thought. I say, you ever seen water run down a hill? It will find a little crevice. And instead of, a, instead of it being spread out, it, it gets stronger and faster once it gets into the rut and it runs together downhill. And it can expedite its journey downhill. Well, in the same way, they can pump their thought into those ruts. And it will rush so fast through that rut that you won't even have a, a chance to make your own choice. Do you understand what I'm talking about? That's the danger of doing that. And so now I'm going to let you choose, you know, uh, moving forward. And that's when they started, you know, my little guy started bringing me his iPad saying, I was really tempted today to go over time. And so I want you to hold this until next Friday when I'm allowed to play with it. Because you realize he's like, this stuff has power over me. Like I, I get stuck. I see a thumbnail. I go down the rabbit hole. Next thing I know, and a half hour has gone by. And I said, we all deal with that. But trust me. Yep. And, um, but he was, he started to make his own choice <clears throat> to realize I don't want that to happen to my mind. And, uh, you know, and I always tell them, then this is why you want to have dominion over your thoughts, because, you know, if you want to create something spectacular and, and you want to innovate and you want to be a leader and you want to be successful, it all requires you to have all of your functions of your, of your mind working. And none of those ruts should be so deep that all of your creative thoughts just get stuck in that channel and flushed away, you want to be able to fire on all the synapse and, and you have a fully functional mind. Yes. Is that what you want? Cause that's what I want, but maybe you don't. They, oh, of course I do. So, okay, this is what I'm protecting you from. And this is what I'm fighting for with you. And then they understand, oh, it's not just dad taking something away from me. It's dad fighting for me. And that makes a big difference in how children learn and listen to the parents. That's a really intense 
conversation with a young person, but also very impressive. <laughs> it sounds like you have exceptional sons. Uh, do you think Americans want to maintain those pathways of creativity and think on their own and not be owned by technology? That's a great question, Kyle, because the answer is yes and no. Um, intrinsically, primally, yes. But because we become so conditioned to follow the leader and have realized that when we follow a leader that we can also escape responsibility, that's what it is. People don't want to be responsible. They don't want to go, I actually caused this. That divorce was my fault. Oops, oops, the, my, my kids are messed up and it's probably because I didn't really even look into the school. I enrolled them in. I didn't meet with the teacher. I just, it was the closest school. It was two miles away. So I said, yes. They don't want to understand like you, the choices that you made out of your addiction to comfort and convenience is probably why those thing, elements of your life are not working. Um, and so I, th there are a lot of people that just want to be told what to do because they don't want to be responsible for their choices. Um, and then they can just blame it on it. You know, oh, it's Biden's fault. Oh, it's Trump's fault. It's whatever. It's like, I, oh, yeah, okay. But the, every time we do that, we're giving our power to those people and to others. We're giving our power away. The moment we say, how did I create this? Now, I may not be been the one that facilitated it, but I, I somehow participated in this. And this is, the, this is the moment for us to wake up, particularly as men, to just really own our behavior of the last several decades, to, to ask ourselves tough questions like, like how much time have I given my children compared to how much time I've given televised sports? Oh, a lot of fathers don't want to ask themselves that one because they've given themselves hours a day with their favorite sports, you know, team and, and not that with their children. You know, and they can tell you, you know, the arm length and the, the free throw average of all their favorite players. We ask them their child's favorite color and they'll go, I don't, I don't know. And it's like, well, that's a little topsy-turvy. It's a little backwards. The thing that you should care about most, the thing that you should know about most. And that's really a calling for us to become intim intimately involved with our children again, particularly at, at a, on a verbal level, to come back to having real dialogues with our children. Every single day, it, not a day goes by that I don't sit down and, and at least say, tell me your favorite part of, the day, of your day today. And why was that so cool? Or why was that so bad? Or what, what happened with that? And, and I, you met a new friend today. What was he like? What was she like? Cool, tell me about that. Let me engage and let me really listen to them and ask questions. They can tell the difference when I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm flipping through my phone, looking around. They can feel it. But when I'm like, wow, that's interesting. I'm laughing at the stuff that's funny and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm leaning in. They they feel that, and they 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 grow up knowing that their voice matters. And look at what we're dealing right now with our society. So many people are just like they don't know how much their voice matters. If we all spoke up right now, if that was just one action, I could I could wave a magic wand and and to make the world a better place right now, it'd be use your damn voice, like speak up. Everybody who's afraid to lose their job, who sees the tyranny right in front of them, but they're like, I just can't lose my job. Guess what? You're going to lose your job if you don't speak out. That's what's coming. So it's like, it, it's prolonged. You might have it for another six months or a year, but it's coming. If you really want to save your job, speak up. Because if that job, if you lose a job because you speak out, that's not the job you want. And you got to trust that there's something else that's waiting there for you. There's something divine that's orchestrating this, ex this experience we call life. And all I know is everyone I've interviewed, 
of course, I've only interviewed people who've spoken out because they're the ones that uh, are worthwhile sitting down with. And, and they've all, I've asked them all the same question. Do you regret speaking out? 100% of the people say, oh God, no. It's like, I didn't have my, I didn't know what my purpose was until I spoke out. It was bad in the beginning. Yeah, it was shocking to have your friends and family turn on you. And, but then you realize those aren't my friends. And if my family's that shallow, F them, I'm moving on. It's like, honestly, it's like, you're not gonna, I'm not invited to Thanksgiving anymore because I wouldn't have, allow an experimental toxin injected into my bloodstream. You know, I'm the bad one. It's like, okay, you got to deal with that. And look, they'll come around in time. They're all learning, waking up and, and then be there to forgive them. Be there to understand they were in under a hypnotic spell. They love you. It has nothing to do with love. It actually has a lot to do with love. That was their love for life. They're so afraid to die because they love life that they're willing to cast people that they love out of their lives. So if you can just realize there's something benevolent and beautiful, beautiful at the core of that reaction that the media and all the hypnotizers are aware of and using against us, um, and, and then learn how to redirect that love for life into something that's not coerced by fear, but that's pulled by our reverence for life. There's something very enlightened about what you just said right there. I'm going to have to take a moment to process it. I want to go back. I also want to talk about what the the, uh, the compliance with tyranny, which I think is a relevant mm -hmm. uh, experience for most people recently, uh, trying to comply their way out of it. Maybe we can touch on just uh, your historical analysis from looking back, it's particularly with this perspective. Have people always been willing to surrender agency in order to reduce their responsibility? Do you think that's a is that a human condition? Is that an American condition? Is that a recent phenomenon? Where, where does that fit, do you think? Well, I've only been here 50 years. I would say in my experience of this life, it's, it's always been the way it is, is that people have been um, led for generations into believing that there are others that are more suited in leading their personal lives. And if we just elect the right person, everything's going to change. Never has, never will. <laughs> Can improvements take place? Absolutely. And I think there's some improvements that are about to take place in 2024. It's going to get a heck of a lot worse before it gets better, but I, I am very optimistic about what's coming. Um, but is that the end all? No. We'll be right back in this position in a few years if we don't wake up and take responsibility for how we got here. And um, But I, I, there's a reason I called my latest movie The Great Awakening, because I believe that that's what we're living in right now is a great awakening where people are remembering truly who and what they are. And that um, on one hand, when you go, it's just so sad that we've lost trust in everything. The very industry and people that we're supposed to have most trust for our medical industry of anything. I mean, we're supposed to, we should trust them more than our, our, our neighborhood priest because these are the people that are dealing with your life, your health, the ones that you go to and you say, something's wrong with me. What is it? What should I do to correct it so I can continue living? We've realized that there's a great majority of them that are um, either incredibly wicked, but the vast majority are just horribly educated by Rockefeller medicine and have been trained and they didn't know how indoctrinated. This is why I called Pandemic 2 indoctrination because all the doctors are indoctrinated. Uh, but we've reached this point of going, I don't trust the hospitals now. I have a movie coming out called Bad Medicine about the 
mean, horrible things that have happened and continue to happen in the hospitals today with remdesivir and ventilators killing most of the COVID deaths are the people that were killed by this bioweapon. And, um, and it's, it's a real scary thing to consider that, and especially when you see the evidence and you hear the, te- the numerous testimonies of people who literally went in for a broken elbow and next thing you know, they're, they're testing positive for COVID and they're on remdesivir and having kidney failure and having a ventilator shoved down their throat and they're suffocating to death or they're dead. How many times I've heard that story in the past two years? It's frightening. Um, but in answer to your question, I think it goes back to what I said a moment ago. It's become normal that we submit to these authoritarian voices, but it's not natural. We were here and born to be sovereign, independent people on this planet to contribute. It's like the cells in in, in your body, trillions of cells in your body. Um, There's no, it's not like a beehive where there's a worker bee that everyone's enslaved to. Each cell has a job and, and its job is vital to the survival of that organism called your body. And it might be the cell at the tip of your right toe and the crown of your head. And there's cells in both. And even though they're, they're separated by the maximum distance, they're working for the same purpose and that is to bring life to that organism of yours. And we, as a metaphor, we are these cells in the body of life, these humans, and we're diseased because we're killing each other. So if the cells in your body start to fight the red cells start to fight the, 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 the um, white cells, you have disease. And, and that's what's happening on the planet here is we don't understand that we're all part of the same organism and we've been turned against each other. Look at, look at the way they just keep slicing and dicing us. This is all part of the divide and conquer game. I think that one of the greatest examples of it is the LGBTQI plus whatever the heck it's at today mm-hmm. um, because it used to be gay people. Then it was gay and bisexual. That one, that makes sense. Gay and bisexual. All the women want to be called lesbian. I remember when I first heard that, I was like, what, what does that mean? That's weird. Why, not, why aren't they just women? Got it. Gay, lesbian, bisexual. Okay, three things. Got it. I can remember that. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, wow, where's this thing gone? That's a perfect metaphor for the way that they divide us, right? Race and height and weight and, and class and territory it's the more they can divide us to where we keep seeing our differences instead of our vast similarities, just meeting at the place called humanity, like we're cells in the body. Um, it, just meeting there going, our life depends on us, all of us. And we're all, we're all critical. We're all here. This is a guy that coined a phrase I used for years. I, I was a nihilist, an atheist. I said, we're just moss on a rock, people. You're all trying to make sense out of something that's meaningless. Moss on a rock. We're just growing with a little bit of consciousness, a little bit of free will, trying to make it mean something. Um, I have grown out of that now because I, I do believe that there is a very calculated experience that we have come here to find ourselves in and to fight for the, the reverence of life itself, of, of evolution, of growing, of learning, there's something in there. I've seen it too many times. I've experienced it directly too many times that this life isn't just happenstance. There's something really divine and magical behind the scenes. And the more that we can slow down and, and open up to perceiving what that might be. Um, I've, I, I've stayed away from the word God forever until just the past few years. Now I'm not afraid to use it anymore. Because Isn't that interesting? Like, 
it's very interesting, particularly for me, if you know where I came from with all of that. And it's like, uh, I can't deny it anymore. And I know that the more I allow that to be part of my life, the better my life gets. And that's what matters to me. The end result is like, I, I want to, like everyone else, I, I want to have a good life. I want to be happy and healthy. Above all, I want my wife and my children to be health, happy and healthy and to know how to generate that, to not think that's somebody else's responsibility to give them, but they generate it, self-generation. And, and all I know is that when I have an awareness that there is a divine intelligence working through me, for me, that life starts to fall into place and these little dramas that used to happen daily, I just don't know where they went to, but they're, thank God they're not there anymore. That's often, at least I still deal with, you know, stuff that comes up and challenges. But um, for the most part, uh, life flows and I'm, I'm in love with the love of my life and I could not have a better relationship with my children. Um, and what, what could be more important? I don't know. I've been everywhere and experienced everything and nothing could top this experience of having a healthy, happy family. I think that's probably universally true that there's one, a universal experience of the divine. And then two, I don't know that there's any culture that is, that is shunned family or, or a productive family. So that's, it's an interesting thing to arrive at from a place that was the alternative to that. Let me, um, let me lean into a little questions about the, the names of the, the films that you've done. So you've done three of them. They, they started off shorter. It looks like they got progressively longer and Plandemic 3, now The Great Awakening. In fact, Ryan and I were just talking about this before we came on and did this interview. And the question is, if there's a great awakening, it implies that people are asleep, which means we have to, I, I come from a very skeptical background of everything. So you have to prove to me when you give me a, a, a case when I was an investigator that there was even a crime. You've alleged a crime, but was there a crime? Did it even line up with the statute? And so for there to be a great awakening, we needed to have people asleep. What do you think the elements are that, that showed you that people were asleep? And then, uh, and, and what makes you think that they're waking up or, or what will help them wake up if that's yeah. the case? Well, I know because I was asleep. And so I know what it feels like to wake up. And it's been a process since 2016 when I was on the road with Bernie Sanders as a filmmaker, helping to grow his grassroots campaign that uh, I realized as I started to ask tough questions to this democratic socialist movement that we were encountering at every stop from Los Angeles all the way to Philadelphia, um, that there were a lot of really good people that were fiercely supporting Bernie but didn't fully understand what they were supporting. And I was one of them. And I started to ask questions like I have at the beginning of the Great Awakening when I, when I realized that I asked you know, group of young, groups of young people, what, what's the difference between socialism and democratic socialism? You know, and they'd have these catchphrases that they throw at. And, but it, the more I drilled, I'm a professional interviewer, so I, I don't just settle for their first answer. I has, just like you just said, it has to make sense to me. I don't get that. I'm going to ask you again, maybe another way, maybe a deeper question until I understand what you mean here. And um, I'm not a big fan of word salads. And so I, I, I would ask again, well, well how, what is, how does that vary from the old socialism? Well, it's socialism, but this is by and for. The reason it didn't work before and it was deadly and horrible is because that was controlled by, you know, oligarchs and all of that. And, um, okay, so how is democratic socialism? What is that? What, who controls that? Well, the democracy by and for the people. So the people control it. And I go, oh, okay. And now socialism is about owning the means of production and making sure that there's no one at the bottom, which sounds cool to me. And you're helping, uh, everyone's helping each other and, 
and the the uber rich the you know they get taxed more so that the people at the bottom aren't suffering there isn't such a gap in classes yes cool who collects those taxes and they would go uh i, I guess that'd be the uh, the government and i'd say hmm do you trust the government and of course everyone no no <laughs> And I say, and do you do you approve of the way the government spends your tax money now? No. Do you understand that you you're telling me you want to give them more? So you want now all the wealthy people who have innovated and built their businesses very successful. You want to tax them up to some people are saying ninety percent. Wow, that's crazy. What do you think that's going to do to them? First of all, think about that. You know, they, they don't care because they're the rich. They're the one percent. Well, you should care because you have to understand most of those people are the ones who provide jobs for the rest of the people, and a lot of those people are actually the innovators who are creating things that actually allow this country to be a leader. And without that innovation, without those creations, then how do we advance as a society? And how do we stay up with? You know, if at the time I was into you know alternative energies and all that, how 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 are we going to advance to find better energies than coal and oil? Which I completely reversed my awareness of the practicality and importance of oil at this point. But then I was way against it, protesting against pipelines, shutting down banks with Jane Fonda and all of that. And uh, but I said, you know, you understand like this doesn't. And some people would admit it. They go, I haven't really thought about this that deep. I just like Bernie. <laughs> okay, cool. That's awesome. And that's when I said, you know, the first question was, are these people hypnotized? Because I don't think they're dumb. A lot of them I'd say, what, what's your education? Because I started to realize there's a real correlation between crazy ideas and university. That's when I started going there. Most of the people who have really crazy ideas, they all studied under some Marxist professor. Interesting. Um, and so they believed it because they were, they were bred and parented into obeying authority. And if they have a professor, this guy must be right. That's their teacher. They're paying, you know, $80,000 a year to learn from this person. They can't be wrong. Or why would they be paying them? It, make, it would make them stupid. And, um, and so they end up, you know, not understanding even what they're supporting. So the moment I said, are they hypnotized? Then I realized, well, I'm part of them. And I'm kind of here too, fiercely supporting Bernie and not really understanding what I'm supporting. Am I hypnotized? And the moment I asked that question, it was like I say in the movie, it was like a faith healing because I started noticing things that I were right in front of me this whole journey, but I couldn't see them. I started realizing, wait a minute, that's a sickle and hammer sticker on your laptop. What that's, that's a co communist sticker. What's that doing there? Oh, oh, here's a Che Guevara shirt and hat and things on water bottles. And I sort of realizing I was sur surrounded by wannabe communists. And I, and I couldn't believe it. And then I started saying, is that like, are you trying to be edgy or what, what is that about? Why are you, <laughs> why are you supporting Lenin? What, you know, what happened, what Lenin did, right? Mao Zedong, what he killed 80 million people. Why, why is that a hero? They all had some crazy story of why these people had the right political ideologies, the, 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 the most deadly dictators of all time. And that's when I went, whoa, wow, I, did, I didn't know I was involved in this. And, and then I withdrew my support online and, for the first, and it saw the fragility of that, uh, I call it being bonded by agreement. That's the problem with um, 
any relationship that's bonded by agreement, but particularly the relationships that are established on the left, um, they're, they're, they're all bonds through agreement. Like you have to check every box. We agree with ideologies. We're not here to celebrate each other and our individuality. We're here as a collective to make sure that we agree with all of it. You can say men can dress in dresses and identify however they want, but the moment you say, I don't think biological men should be competing in combat sports against women, then you're out of the club. That's it. You have to agree. Check every box. And I didn't realize that I was, you know, kind of a, I'd just fallen into being part of that collective. And um, the moment I came out to say, I, I am no longer support this, then I was called a traitor and I was their number one target for a while. And I was like, interesting how fast you can go from being the poster child and the hero. I just, people are like, thank you so much for all the work you're doing to support Bernie. And I saw the video you made and it was great. And that was wonderful to suddenly being like, you know, you ever step foot in our neighborhood and you might not make it out like threats, death threats. I was like, wow, this is, I was in a cult. I didn't even know it. Well, you use the word. And so I, I want to touch that just a second. Um, uh, one of the arguments I make is that progressive leftism is essentially a secular religion. It's devoid of God, which is one of the scary, sad things about it. So there's no redemption, but there is all the other tenants. They have all these sort of competing beliefs that have to be accepted by faith. You just talked about a couple of them. And the minute that you step out of line from that and you're no longer part of the community, you get excommunicated, you're a heretic or an apostate. And we can see how organized religions have treated people like that over the last thousand years. And it's not, it's not a good experience. We do it digitally now, thankfully, for the most part. Uh, you said you got actual death threats, but uh, I'm guessing nobody actually followed through with physical violence towards you. Is that is that a fair no, assumption? No, yeah, that's fair. They, they all just talk. They're all, they're all. But they have those same feelings of rage and anger, and they have that same sort of feeling of betrayal of the cause, which have, like you said, bonded by agreement. That's your, that's, is, did you coin that phrase? Yeah, I think so. I, I've never heard it before. So I, it's very interesting yeah. to me. As long as you agree with the tenets of our, our belief system, then you're part of the club. Yeah, and the minute a, you start recognizing that cognitive dissonance, then it gets weird. Yeah, it's the same thing that even people need to understand that are in marriages too. You know, it's not just a political thing or a tribal thing, but it's a lot of people are in relationships because they they agreed ab upon something and something felt like there was a fit. It didn't really necessarily have to do with love or attraction or theramones or anything like that, but just we agree and we we both like whatever it might be. You know, we're where um, you, see, you see a lot of people out there. We just got back. Uh, my son turned twelve, and we were at. Um, Universal Orlando, mm -hmm. and we we're walking through Harry Potterville, Orlando, whatever it is, and and I'm seeing these, you know, 20, 30 year old um, couples with magic wands in their hand and the Harry Potter robes on, and you know, part of it's sometimes it's cute, and sometimes it's like, like what, what is going on here? <laughs> and and they're both they're both dressed like this, you know, right. and 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 you have to, you know. That, that's an example of where like they probably met on a Harry Potter chat line and because they have Harry Potter in common, they get together. But what happens when, you know, hopefully, hopefully one or both of them will grow out of that one day. What happens when they're 35 and they go, eh, I'm kind of done with Harry Potter. Um, will that love still be there? Right. You know, that's the question. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a really troubling thing to see from the outside because you've got the, the age and the experience to go look at it and just think like, this is probably not sustainable forever. It's the, I, I used to see the same thing in the nineties with the, the juggalo movement. Do you remember them? The insane clown posse. If you base your entire sort of identity about your love of this band 
And I mean, yes. it could be anything. It could be jam bands. There's people that like yeah. fish and go everywhere with that. Right. And you just think, is that enough to sustain a permanent connection through some really difficult times? And there could be some really difficult times, which we've just gone through a couple of years of it. I think a lot of people, you know, maybe it does. Maybe, maybe if you have fish in common, you can handle whatever, uh, whatever comes your way. But my suspicion is probably not. It doesn't seem well, to be the way it stacks up usually. Well, the, you know, and the, the shallowness of it is so apparent when you really consider, I've had friends who have moved from LA where I came from to Texas and they go from being, you know, an uh, LA sports fan Lakers to they get in Texas. Now they're whatever the team yeah, is Cowboys here. Or so, Oilers or something. Yeah. Right. So it's like, so it's so interesting, right? It's this territorial thing. It's like no more now, L, now LA is the enemy. Now they're battling against because they live here. And it's such a funny thing. You know, there's, there's a part of that that I, I think is innocent. Um, I, I'm, I'm an athlete. I, I, I coach baseball and, and so I, I, I get it. You know, it's a, it's a, good thing to be involved in competitive sports, I believe, particularly as, as a boy, uh, mm -hmm. to have boys involved in that. They learn team building and, and uh, you know, how to deal with defeat and, and um, how to push themselves beyond limits, beyond the comfort zone. So it's, it's incredibly valuable. Um, but just that, that tribalism to see how, how fragile it is, how it can just shift, you know, in a moment's notice. And, um, I saw people that, you know, speaking of Harry Potter, I saw, um, you know, because the author, what's her name? Um, J.K. Rollins. Uh, J.K. Rollins. You know, I, I saw people that just because she came out and said things that they didn't like her saying. Yeah, she wants it, women to be in women's spaces and not have men yeah, in their in their locker rooms. What a, or whatever. what a nut. What a crazy nut. Right? What a kook. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because she came out and spoke her mind, right? you know, then suddenly these lifelong Potter fanatics were like i'm done and, and burning her their, books or <laughs> burning right? her books and their robes and everything sure. so again it's like look how fragile that is so so because the person who wrote the book doesn't agree with every doesn't check every box you check politically um the, a movie that obviously has brought you some joy and, and some some kind of reward at least at the identity level um that she's the enemy all of a sudden. And that whole thing that was your obsession just two minutes ago is over now. And so that's, that's bonded by agreement. You know, they're bonded by, they're bonded to Harry Potter through the story, but they're also bonded by making sure that the person writing the story is in agreement with them. And that's what's so fragile. I saw so many, when Pandemic One came out, I saw so many people, there were a couple that I knew for over 20 years that I call brother. And I'm not the kind of guy that just calls everyone brother. I'm, I'm You're not like the Hulk Hogan type where everybody- yeah. <laughs> Or, or, or um, what's his name? Um, uh, Cornell, Cor Cornell West, who everyone's my brother, my right, brother. Yeah. That's too much for um, me too. And, and I, you know, I get it, you know, because we are brothers and sisters, I get it. But I don't, I just don't throw that word around lightly until I really meet somebody and I go, this feels like a brother, you know, I, and then I'll use the word. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, it's it, where the hell was I going? I don't even know. Just the, uh, the frailty of this, the fragileness is the yeah, first that's it. That's, film that's comes pretty out. much it. Yeah, it's just it's you know we go from that to just you know that this person is your enemy overnight, and that's that feels know, really new. Is it is it just me? I don't remember growing up with that. Like like you must agree with everything I'm about, or never, we cannot even never. be close. I, I don't remember. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I spent a great deal of my life meeting with people only because they were so different from me 
My yeah. mom would drop us off. We had our, I looked, born and raised in Sacramento and there was a, um, a mall, Sunrise Mall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was the big outing for me as a child, right? We're going to take your friends. We're going to drop you off at the arcade at the Sunrise Mall. And there were times when she'd come to the arcade to pick us up and she's like, where is, where, where my friends would be in there playing. They're like, oh, he left a couple hours ago. She went, what do you mean he left? And she'd find me and be sitting at the, at the fountain next to some old man. And she'd be like, okay, time to go. She'd go, what are you doing? I said, I'm talking. I said, oh my God, this old man, he was in World War II, mom. He got shot in the leg and whatever. It's like, why are you so interested in all these stories with people? It's like, I just was fascinated. And so I carry that on in my adult life where it's like, I love to interview people that were like into stuff that I thought was bizarre. There's no way that's for me, but that's so fascinating to sit down with someone. And, and even politically, you know, when I first started doing political stuff, I was fascinated by people who would, um, you know, praise someone that I looked at and thought that's the least interesting person in the world. And yet they're so you know, devoted to this person. How interesting, like what causes that? And, 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 but yeah, you're right. Nowadays, everyone's looking for the sameness and that's boring to me. That's boring. I don't want everyone to agree with me. I love, you know, when I'm on podcasts and someone will be like, you know, I really loved your movie, but there's, you know, one thing I really got to push back on. Awesome. Let's go. Right. Awesome. This is That's, great. That was, that was the, that was literally the fodder for all bar conversations in my youth. It's like, yeah. I saw this thing and I saw, you know, this take on it and someone goes, you're totally wrong. It was actually, you know, something else. And you go, yeah. how, how did you come up with that? And then they tell you, and then you're not mad at them. It's more fascinating. Dr. Drew actually said that. Dr. Drew Pinsky, who, you know, I grew up listening to Loveline. I don't remember if you, you oh, yeah. were young enough, to, or young enough at yeah. the time when it was like really yeah. interesting. Oh, I was sure. a you know, teenager and listening to him and going like, oh, I was learning about sex from, from the radio because I was a radio nerd. My dad was in radio. So I'm listening to this guy and he goes, if a doctor came up with a, with a conclusion that was totally different than what I saw and what I believed and what I'd been observing with my patient, I would send him an email or I would call him and say, let's have a conversation. I'd really like to know what you're seeing. Cause I don't yeah. get it yeah. out of fascination, but, but not as a threatened way. And today no. it feels like, and maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is the nuance of it. When people take on ideas, they make that their core, I don't know, value their, their, their reality. And then you're attacking their, either their reality or their value system. And so if we don't you're agree, attacking. then you're not even a value. You're, you're, you're attacking me. Yeah. You're, it's not you're just my words. Literally their identity. And so right. we have become obsessed with identity politics. It's all about, the people and not the policies. And that's where we make the massive mistakes and, and not recognizing, you know, like, I don't like the way Trump talked and I don't like what he was mean. And he did this tweets and whatever. Cool. What's he doing? Right. Do you How's your 401k that, that, look? That, that exactly. Do you understand that people are, have food on their table that didn't have it yesterday? Do you understand that there's a lot happening for minorities and women that have never happened before in this country that they're on, he's undoing a lot of the truly systemic racism that was plaguing this country. Like, you know, like the three strikes you're out prison situation that, you know, that imprisoned a generation of Brown and primarily Brown and black men. And with, with uh, life sentences for some, some of them having a joint on them, you know, like real harsh, uh, things that were being undone, that we have, you know, uh, peace talks with Russia and Korea. And like, there's some 
massive things that were happening. Yeah, the and I went from I went swept from, under. <laughs> yeah, I, I went from really not liking him to having a conversation. His former wife, Marla Maples, is a very dear friend of mine, mm -hmm. and um, and we had a conversation when when Trump was president, and she knew she knew that I wasn't a big fan of of him, um, and she told me she said. One thing I can, she goes, look, I'm, I'm ex-wife. So of course I have my complaints, of course. But I cannot deny that my time with him, what he showed me was that man loves this country. He talked about it all the time. He was so hurt by what was happening to it that he said, if he ever has to jump in, he will. He doesn't want to, but he will. And he used all of his power that he's accumulated to do his best to save this country. She goes, that I know is real because I was with him. And I went, really? Wow. I thought he was just super selfish, greedy, bit real estate mogul guy that was, yeah. she's like, no, no, he's losing a lot of money right now. Business could be a lot easier. And I said, wow, that's good. Thank you for that. You know, let me start opening my mind and heart to get off of what I just mentioned, get off of the fact that he, he can, you know, be offensive and I actually learn to love that after a while. I went, we need to, people need to thicken their skin and start saying what they feel again. You know, people are so fragile that of, of course, if we're going to honor free speech, free speech doesn't always feel good, you know, but let somebody speak the way they speak. Are we strong enough? Are we big enough as people to, 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 um, to know how to navigate that stuff that we don't like and, and, could it be valuable for us to endure things? Because when we insulate ourselves from the real world, there's mean people out there, a lot of rude people out there. And if, and I, you know, I set my kids down when they were about your, your kid's age, five, six years old, both of them. And I put them through a process that we called bully proof. I said, I'm going to make you bully proof. I'm going to tell you a bunch of names that inevitably you're going to be called. And they had ne never heard one of them. But I said, every, every boy gets called this. You're going to get called this. You're going to be at the arcade or the trampoline park or somewhere, not your little school that we helped create because those kids, they're being taught in a very special way. But you end up out in public. You're going to be called a queer, a this or that, whatever. I told them, what does that mean? Yeah. This is what it means. And this is, and taught them so that my, when my kids had the first experience with bullies, when they, they both have had at least one apiece, my little one actually got beat up pretty severely by a 13 year old girl when he was seven. And, um, and, uh, but both of them had the same reaction. I had to sit down and just to make sure there's no trauma. I don't want them to take trauma with that. And there's a way that you can speak with your children post event to make sure that they can process what happened and understand that golden rule. It didn't happen to you. It happened for you. So if it happened for you, what's the value and what's the lesson in this? And both boys said to me at their separate times after having dealt with, um, encountered a, a bully, they said something very similar, which was something akin to, it just makes me really feel sad for that kid. I wonder what happened to him, that he would be so mean. So yeah, there you go. Now you know, it's not about you. It's about them. And, um, and now you're already applying compassion towards somebody who just bullied you. How awesome is that? Yeah, it's because very important for that age that will keep you from keep it from sticking to you um like the way it stuck to me as a kid you know there were you didn't have that same experience then you didn't have that same talk obviously 
No, I was raised with a single mom. She had four, four, three teenagers by the time I came along. So there was a lot of, a lot of life that I had to learn on my own. And again, perfect. Didn't happen to me, happened for me. But absolutely, I had to deal with, I got so insecure for a while because I was really tall at a very young age and <laughs> really skinny. And um, so, you know, I was I called daddy long legs and chicken legs and all kinds of stuff. And so I became so insecure that I'd wear a pair of sweatpants under my jeans just to give me a little more bulk, mm -hmm. you know, and I wore shoes two sizes too small, which created serious issues in my, I still have toes that curl under a little bit. Um, all because there was like, my feet were so big and people were making fun of my foot size. And, and, you know, I didn't have the tools I wish I had, but again, it's perfect. It's divine. That's my life's path that I, I had to, you know, suffer through things that I, actually didn't have to, but I chose to because I didn't have the tools to navigate them um, that my sons do have that I didn't have. And, and again, though, I tell them all the time when they, you know, they'll make a choice that's that clearly there's a higher choice and they make a lower choice. And I say, well, for some reason you needed to experience the, the, um, you know, the challenging side of this lesson. Um, <laughs> what that, what might that be, you know, and, and they'll, you know, they're very emotionally literate. I'm, I'm super, I love talking to my kids because they just amaze me sometimes, you know, that, uh, um, I was, um, I was on stage this last Saturday and there was somebody who was speaking and this person we love very, very much. And sometimes they get lost in thought when they're speaking and what they say makes no sense. And you can see the audience going, what? what's going on here? And so when we got in the car after the talk, you know, I started talking to my wife. I said, um, you know, I'm, I just, I need to re really reach out to her because when she gets into that mode of sharing stories, she doesn't always consider that the audience doesn't know these names she's talking about. She needs to give some context to what she's saying. Otherwise, she's just throwing out random names and telling stories as if everyone, in the, you know, and I started sharing this and my 12-year-old goes, you know what it's like, Dad? He goes, it almost appeared that her mind is spiraling. And he gave this incredible metaphor. He goes, it's like a spiral and her mind is spiraling. And every now and then a thought drops out of the spiral and it comes out of her mouth. And he gave me this metaphor and I went, that's actually really brilliant, buddy. Like, wow, that's exactly, that's how the cognitive process works. Like you just nailed it. Mm -hmm. And having the ability to observe something happening physically and then turning it into a metaphor that can be understood as a teaching tool is a really incredible gift to, to leave your children because they apply that to themselves. So when they have a situation that occurs to them, they don't necessarily get caught up in the trauma and drama of it as much as the scientific, you know, like what just happened to me here? I got really upset. They can start to analyze that. Like my mind was spiraling and then I just started throwing stuff out. And that's, you know, they can understand their own process because what most people do, most adults do, is they'll have an experience and then they spend a lot of time trying to justify the bad behavior. And all that does is prolong the bad behavior. The moment we can say, I, you know, I denounced that bad behavior. <laughs> that was me. I take responsibility for it. The moment we do, we're shining light on it and it no longer has power over us. But this is one of the reasons I believe that we keep saying history keeps repeating itself because we don't learn, we don't move, we don't evolve past these, past these problems because we're, we're so 
wanting to justify that it was somebody else who made us do this. I had a kind of a weird uh, reflection on the history keeps repeating itself piece, if you will. Mm -hmm. And everyone always thinks that it's us that is doing the same history over and over again. But I, I have the sense, and I don't know if it's true or not, but this is kind of where I'm late, like sitting in the last couple of weeks. We don't know what happened to people historically, and we tolerate that happening to us again by people who are pulling all the levers. You mentioned a narrative and, and all this sort of industry that is built up to go after and kind of shape behavior and so on. And, and I feel like if you're not aware of how that's happened historically, then you 100% will experience what people historically did, tyranny and so on. Uh, because you have other people have tolerated before you and you don't know any better. And so oftentimes it's not even a question of whether or not, you know, whether or not you're going to repeat somebody else's mistakes, you're just going to tolerate someone repeating the same sort of bad behavior on you because you didn't see it coming. Because how could you? Because you weren't aware of it. Of all the deadly ideas out there that we hold on to, one of the most deadly is the idea that that can never happen here. That's what has allowed these things to continue to occur in places that people would have bet their lives that would never happen there. And so we have to realize there's a misconception that we have that we're in a different age now and we are much more enlightened than we were before, much wiser. We've learned from our mistakes and look how technologically advanced we are. Um, what that does is it has us um, miss the fact that these things continue to happen. They just, they're just shapeshifters. They happen in a different way. They happen incrementally. A lot of these things happen incrementally. And when something happens so much, when our lives are moving so fast, we have so much mental momentum and we're so busy, which everyone's busy right now, right? Everybody is just trying to, trying to get a meeting in and people's like, oh, just let me see Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I got a little time on Sunday, but you know, everybody's busy. And that's all by design because when we're, when we're just filled there's no space for to stop and to contemplate. Um, that's when things happen. It's kind of like, you know, if you look, take a look at your yard, and if you see your yard every day, you you don't even know that it's growing. But if you step away for two weeks and you come back, you're like, whoa, that sucker grows fast. Mm -hmm. And it's that it's that being unaware for just enough of a, a period of time that something happens without your knowing. And so a lot of these things happen are, are, are set to happen so incrementally and sometimes so right in front of us and wrapped in a beautiful benevolent package that we look past it because we think, well, no, this is good. I'm looking for the stuff that's bad. I'm here to protect myself. And I have this primal thing in me that says I have to find you know the dangers of the world. This isn't dangerous though. This you know, and then we look past it because it was wrapped in, you know, climate awareness or some great story of, of you know, how, how wonderful this thing is. And, um, you know, the vaccine, oh, it's a miracle, you know, and, 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 uh, and you, they start a narrative that it's just, it's a gift from God and science and, oh, how incredible that they were able to whip something up in such a short period of time. You know, so many of us went, that's bad. <laughs> That's never good. That's not a good thing. You shouldn't be celebrating that you could whip up a vaccine in seven months. That's a bad thing. <laughs> it, um, nothing makes that good. How, how did you decide that? How, how did it come to you that someone said, we have, a, we have a vaccine, we've done it in this short time, we've created a medical miracle. How did you know that was bad? What, what, how did you know that was anything? How did you have a feeling on it? Well, because you can't do long-term um, studies in a short 
period of time. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's math. And so you can't, you, you know that these things take seven to 12 years or so before you know it's long-term study. And, and so the idea that you can do a short period of time is no different than saying, I'm going to chop off my head and stand on it so I can be taller. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. It's, it just, it doesn't work that way. So just knowing that principle, that scientific principle had people, anyone who, you know, understood that science was something much bigger than little Anthony Fauci knew right away, you can't do this. This has never been done. It should, should never be done because time is the thing that tells all. And we don't know all yet. So to mandate something that we have no idea what it's going to do, there's a lot of us that did know. We knew, we knew ahead of time. This is this. What is, about the death rates? Did those ever? Did you ever feel like that was good information coming your way? Were you skeptical of any of the other sort of stats and data that was driving the behavior? Well, I, I knew all of it was a fraud from the beginning. I have a video that I released two weeks after the pandemic was announced, and I said I'm going to make a prediction here, and that is this virus is man-made, intentionally released to kill our economy and to, I talked about all the things going on in politics. I talked about Jeffrey Epstein and all this stuff. I said, all of this is a diversion of false flag from a bunch of stuff that's uh, going down right now in the world of politics and beyond. Um, and so there, and you know, my brother was killed by a drug called AZT and mm -hmm. that drug was prescribed by Anthony Fauci in the eighties and nineties. And it killed on record 300,000 plus innocent people, which means, probably 3 million people. And so I knew as soon as I saw him at the helm of this, it blew my mind because I figured, I knew what he did in the 80s and 90s. And I figured this guy's got to be either high, in hiding somewhere or, you know, in prison. I didn't, I didn't keep track with him because back when my brother died, we didn't have the internet. So we weren't able to research and I wasn't a researcher or anything like that. I was in my early 20s. And, uh, but I, when I saw him resurface, I was like, this is not going to go well. People have no idea what we're about to experience here. Can Something you touch on AZT just a little bit too, just for folks that don't have that background? AZT was a drug that was created as just like remdesivir today, of today, a drug that was created and it was touted as the miracle cure for anyone with HIV AIDS. And everyone who took it got s s more sick right away. My brother was one of them who he lived with AIDS for, I don't know, eight years or something like that. He was a survivor and he probably would have been alive today. Um, but, uh, they, you know, he was told by his doctors, they all said that there's a new drug and it's, it's, it's a miracle. And he started to take it and he get, became incredibly sick every single day, migraine headaches and diarrhea and throwing up and got really skinny. He started to look for the first time, look like an AIDS patient. He looked horrible from a, you know, kind of a, you know, big, good looking guy to just a skeleton. And, uh, and so my mom, you know, she started to her, my brother's friends, my brother was gay, his community started to come to him and say, and to tell my mom, because they all love my mom. And, and she, they'd say, you know, it's, uh, it's not the vi a virus that's killing your son. It's a medicine. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, it's killing thousands of people. You need to take him off that medicine. And then she'd tune it, tune into the, you know, latest news flash and there would be Anthony Fauci surrounded by the top celebrities of that age, Liza Minnelli and Liza Minnelli and Elton John and all these people and and everyone's praising what a genius and wonderful person he is. And so these are all icons in the gay community that were celebrities, gay celebrities that were had the big voice, right? Exactly. 
-hmm. And so she's, so my mom's left like a lot of people experienced just in the last three years where she says, do I listen to a bunch of people or do I listen to America's top doctor? Do I listen to science? And so she chose to keep my brother on the medicine. And she never said this out loud, but I know this to be true. Um, I think it's probably difficult for a couple of people in my family when um, my, the, the Great Awakening came out and I exposed what I thought in the beginning of the film. They haven't said anything, but I'm sure it probably at least made a couple of them think. I said that it was grief. My mom was a cancer survivor for, geez, I don't know, 15 years. And she, again, she would have lived to a ripe old age, um, but she died at 58. Um, 34 days later, after the day my brother died, 34 days later, uh, my mom succumbed to her cancer after fighting it off for 15 plus years. Mm -hmm. And part of it was grief because she knew that uh, the choice that she had made, that she was coerced into and terrorized into making, which was keep your son. The doctor said, we understand. I know everybody's having an issue with the side effects and they're all, everyone's, you know, feeling like your son is feeling, but um, he's, his body's just acclimating to the new medicine. And, and once that's over, it will save his life. Otherwise your son will die. And, uh, and to have her son suddenly die and to realize it's probably the medicine that I was part of, you know, making him stay on. How many families are dealing with that right now? How many families um, force the rest of their family to get vaccinated? I know I, I can tell you one, Ernest Ramirez, um, become a very good friend of mine who took his 15 year old son in to get the vaccine. And uh, son, after getting the vaccine, went on to the bas basketball court at 15 years old, had a heart attack and died. And, uh, and he, that's one of uh, thousands, if not millions of stories of loved ones who are forever going to live. It's one thing to lose your loved one, but just imagine, imagine the pain that comes with knowing that the choices that you made were part of what took the lives of your loved one. And there are so many families that are going through that right now. And, and most of them will never recover. You can't talk to Ernesto about his son without him crying. And this is kind of a hard, and he's a Latino man. He's a, he's a, you know, a Harley driver, a rider. I can't believe I said. Yeah. You got to say, right. I, I ride motorcycles all my life. I can't believe I just said that. You know, you know, what's funny is uh, we have this funny little uh, experience where I used to be a paramedic and run around on an ambulance. And, and we had a hard time calling guys that rode scooters riders because that, that kind of offended me as someone who rides motorcycles. It's like, right. uh, so I right. called them scooter pilots. You got <laughs> to be specific in your words, right? So scooter pilot, motorcycle rider. Go. I'm with you. There I'm you tracking. Go. There you go. So he, so he rides a Harley and he's a tough he rides guy. a Harley, you know, he's, but, a, he's, a, he's, destructive. he's, he's just, it, that was his baby. It was, he was raising his son by himself and doing and, what he um, thought was right. Yeah. And imagine that, imagine getting a call from the, the, he went out to play basketball with his buddy and the mom of the other, other, other kid calling saying, come quick. There's an emergency. Uh, you know, Ernie jr. Uh, I think is what he called him. Um, uh, he's collapsed and he was dead. And I can't tell you how many stories I've said across from people in the interview room, hearing this horrible stories of, of, uh, innocent people. You know, it's, it's, uh, I don't shy away from calling it genocide because uh, that's what's happened in our country and in our, in our world in the past few years. So, yeah, one of my initial instincts, just even looking at the, the name of your website, um, you know, pandemic has a, such an emotional connotation to it. Genocide has such a emotional connotation to it. It's one of those words that just really gets people spun up and it ties things together that they're not comfortable with. And I wonder if it's 
that we're not okay with hearing things that are tough to hear. That may be part of it. And then I wonder if the other piece of it is, is that um, there's so many people in this country that have a vested interest in not believing they were part of being conned and that they didn't have something to do with a lot of people having negative effects. You know, the highlight reels of people dying on the, on the sports field or dying while they're doing journalism and broadcasting and all the other things. I mean, they're, they're almost comical how common they are and how ridiculous the scenarios are. And yet, you know, every single one of them has a story like your, like your friend Ernesto, it sounds like, mm -hmm. you know, like there's somebody on the other end of that. It's so easy to get detached from it. I, I don't have anybody in my life that, that fell over like that, but I can only imagine like that would be crippling. Well, and it's, yeah, it's tough on them for, for many levels. So it's, it's tough on the people. They don't want to wake up to the truth for a lot of reasons. It's going to create them great pain and for a, a couple of primary reasons. And that is we have a, a world that has been designed to keep people in the maze. And I, I call them maintenance workers, all of us, right? We're just maintaining a bunch of crap got to maintain our house and our cell phone and our car and just work our whole life, you know, and we just five, six days a week. Um, and, and there's rarely enough money to save or travel or to do anything other than just maintain all the stuff you're in debt to. Mm -hmm. And when, and as a result of that, nobody has, very few people have the time and the space to exercise their passions to pursue their purpose in life. And so when you, when, when meaning becomes a crisis and we have, I think Carl Jung said that we have a crisis of meaning in this world. When people are just existing, even if they can look at their life and go, I'm grateful for it. It's a good life. Cool. And, and there's meaning in it, but is it a meaningful life is what you're doing are the time that you're investing because our, our energy, our time is valuable what we put our attention to, um, you know, when we say pay attention, we're paying as a value in our attention. And when that is being spent on things that we know don't really matter, um, it might matter to someone, it might matter to the CEO or the inventor of that product or whatever it might be, but it doesn't really matter to you if that product lives or dies. It just is a paycheck so you can pay for the stuff that owns you. Um, when the majority of our population is living that way, paycheck to paycheck, and you suddenly, the people running all these agendas and these pandemics, they, they, they know. They know exactly how to manipulate the people. They know that now all, I've, all they have to do is run on loop in the, in the media. They have to, you need a villain, so you have to point to the villain. The villain are all those people who aren't, are not following the science. Those people who are doing their own research and thinking for themselves, they're actually the bad ones. And one way for you to signal to others that you are not them is to put on this mask and then everyone will know that you're in compliance and you're the good one. How about a, uh, how about a virus tattooed on your shoulder where you got a shot or maybe even like a, a bandage with a date? How are yeah. those aging, you think? Exactly, exactly. And so that's how much people need meaning. That's how much people need connection. There's a, a core wound that, that most people are enduring. And that is a wound of being separate. Um, and, and it's quite possible that to some degree, we're all experiencing that in some way. That there really is a, um, it's almost as if we've decided to play a game. I find it interesting that they say that the name of God is I am that I am. Mm -hmm. I think I always found that very interesting. What a weird name, quote unquote name. And if, if that's the name of God, 
why do we spend so much time playing the game i'm not that because that's what we do most of most of our thoughts is i'm not that i don't agree i wouldn't do what that person does i don't like the way they look or the way they sound or what they're just about. basic human judgmentalness uh, you know way more um, when i was a teacher i used to ask my students give me a list of everything that you um that you love and you hate and the hate list was instant and long and it took everybody longer to make the list of what they truly loved and you have to really you know like take that in for a moment why is it so easy for us to say i hate traffic i hate rude people i hate that just boy we can pour it out what do you love and then you go real quick there's a few things off the top of my mom my, and, and then i used to love uh, van halen not anymore i used to, you used oh, to love interesting. Van halen. <laughs> interesting interesting yeah and so it, 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 it becomes I love van halen. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes more challenging on on the what do you love list for a lot sure. of people and so that tells me there's almost like a program like a code that's been installed to allow us to have an independent experience of this life um, because we really truly the same way that our cell phones are energetically connected um, all we have to do is dial a frequency and, and, it, and they're directly connected with no physical cord between them and human beings are connected that way to each other and to our planet and to God and to all, all of life but we it's almost as if we wanted to play this game of free will this game of I am I am not that so much so that um, it's created this core wound in us that we realize, wow, we've kind of swept up in this game to where the game has consumed our lives now, to where we're killing each other now because we're so different. Did you ever read um, the uh, the Ender's Game series? Are you familiar with that from Orson Scott Card? I have heard of it, but I've not read it now. Put it on your list of things. I'll, I'll just put it in your ear, and at some point, when you get a few seconds, or you're on an airplane somewhere flying, uh, take it. Take a copy of Ender's, and then take a couple of the other ones. One of the really interesting. Um, thought experiments. So he's a Mormon, but he writes about Catholics. So that's kind of funny. And he's writing about this future genius society where they basically said, you know, we're going to be invaded by these aliens. And we need these kids and they're going to be super kids. And so they breed them for brilliance. And one of the concepts in there that's really, really interesting to me is this, this idea of the phylotic connection. That's how they had faster than light communication, faster than light travel, travel across incredible distances. And essentially it's, it's like, it's like quantum physics. It's quantum entanglement is what it talks about. Mm -hmm. uh, different particles being interacting with other particles at distance instantaneously. Okay. And then what they even get down to even further as they go on, because he gets into the physics of it, and it's a sci-fi book, so they write their own physics. But the physics are deeply tied to metaphysics or religion. And essentially that people uh, forge these phylotic connections. This particle, this, this deep particle that is within each one of us can actually bond to partners of ours, people we love people that we are deeply connected to. And so as we resonate in the world, so do they resonate with some of the feelings that we have. The greater the mm -hmm. distance is, is irrelevant. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know, there's, a, there's just a beauty in, in the way that he describes it. It's, I, some of what you're saying rings very true to the way yes. that Orson Scott Card talked about it. And, and the idea that it occurs in different laboratories and different minds to me tells me that there must be some fundamental truth to that. So many different people have believed that. Uh, how many people have said to their partner in life, you know, like we are one. Yeah. We, you know, we're the same thing. We, we were two, what we are one we've bonded. There's a, a biblical connection to that in Judeo-Christian tradition as well. Anyway, I, I, yes. I just find it fascinating that there, it's such a ubiquitous experience in human, human history, uh, and human relational yeah. development. You know what I mean? There, there has to be some fundamental deep truth to that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you're looking at it from that angle because it's, it's kind of going back to the metaphor of the cells in our bodies. When we see ourselves as cells, 
in the body of this life, this body of, of, of this experience that we're having here together, um, then we start to realize the necessity for us to see each other as allies. Uh, we don't want to destroy the cell next to us, even if it's incredibly different. You know, it's like, you're a toe cell. You're a brain cell. It's like, I'm better than you because I'm up here at the top. It's like, it's all a silly game that we play, this hierarchy that we create as if, you know, you know, I, again, through, when I explain these things to my, to my kids, I'll use, you know, baseball metaphors because they both play ball. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I explain to them about how it's, everything is a team and every base matters. And, um, and the pitcher and the catcher might be handling the ball 90% more than the rest of the team. Um, but that doesn't mean any of those positions are any less important. Without one of those positions, it becomes a hole, a weakness that the other team will take advantage of. And, and that team will lose if it minuses one player, needs all nine players on the field. And, um, and so it's important for us to start looking at, uh, you know, our humanity in that way. Like we're, we're all necessary here in this experience even to some degree are the ones that we are aware are creating the problems. Um, and I equate it uh, again, spilling out these metaphors, uh, understanding the world of 3d art as part of my world that I, that I work in and understanding what it is that makes 3d. What's the difference between 2d and 3d shadow. And so we're, we're here in the third dimension that we call this scientifically the third dimension. Um, and, uh, and, and so shadow is necessary. We'll always have shadow and um, we'll never get rid of it, nor do we want to totally get rid of it, but we cannot allow the shadow to consume the entire image with darkness because it just becomes one oblique dark picture. And that's what the shadow's attempting to do right now. And so what then, how do you defeat that? By shining brighter. And that's what everyone needs to do right now is to shine brighter. Don't allow the darkness, the shadow to consume you such that you are now shadow because that's what happens, right? You take on the shadow and you become a, every day you're complaining and you're in fear and now, okay, you're a shadow maker now. Um, and when you really came here to shine your light and that's how we defeat this is it's just the, the image is being amplified and, and it's, and it's pixels and it's brilliance. Um, and the, the shadows forcing us to shine brighter. And so there's also divinity in that. Yeah, and honestly, shadow is what? It's the ability to absorb light as opposed to reflect light and, and share it. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, it takes right. it in. Uh, interestingly, I was just thinking about one of the, the worst things you could probably say to one of your children would be to tell them that they are useless. That would be a, like a debilitating blow, I think, from a parent, especially from a father. Uh, the idea that you don't have any value, that you can't add anything. Right. And, and I don't remember if you ever heard that when you were a kid, but I know that would be one of the things Ah, you're useless, get off the field, whatever it may be. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's crushing. And if it comes from your peers, it's less important. If it comes from someone you really respect and from, uh, from an adult, and that could be, that could be debilitating. And, you know, well, you just said that, everybody has value on that note, since you're, a, is, is this your first child, six-year-old, your first child? My first is six. Yeah. I got a four, I got a two, and I got another one coming oh, in a couple of days. So, oh, wow. Fantastic. Um, the uh, one phrase that is way too often uttered by parents and it, it does so much damage to kids and it's so common is what is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. That's a, a really harmful thing to say to your children. What is wrong with you? Because when it comes from 
most parents because they have been disempowered. They don't feel like powerful people. They don't understand then the influence they have on that little human that they brought into this world. And when a parent says, what is wrong with you? What they're actually telling the child is something's wrong with you. And right. so that child will live into that and they will create something wrong with them. And they'll spend their life living through the filter that something's wrong with me. And, um, you know, and then one day they'll do mushrooms or ayahuasca and get over it, but um, <laughs> as, as is needed, <laughs> but, uh, Some consciousness expansion, <laughs> but until that happens, you know, they, they will endure a lot of hardship in relationships and failures in business and all of that. Because if you, um, which is why I, you know, I've had to leave my industry of Hollywood because I realized, wow, these narratives, even a lot of my favorite films are so destructive. It's just almost every sci-fi movie is about humanity, humanity being a plague, a cancer, a failed experiment, uh, you know, and we're not the good guys in Hollywood anymore. No, people. no, we haven't been for a long time, particularly us men. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, I remember watching Fern Gully, which was animated when I was a kid and thinking yeah. like, oh, like who are the bad people? The loggers, the industrialists, the people trying to build homes for people <laughs> and they're, they're killing yeah. off the fairyland. Right. And even yeah. that is just, it's such a silly version of it. And then you look at it and we got to reeducate our kids when we show them these things. It's like, well, there's another side to that story because there are people that were living on the ground or they were in the Amazon and you're giving them industry and you're giving them opportunities. Yeah. There's you know, always do trees a... have sentience. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's always a, a, another side to each of those stories. And I'm glad you look at those because the, the, our kids need to understand those other sides and, and, uh, and, and learn how to detect themselves when they're being fed a narrative that is meant to manipulate them in some way. My 12 year old is so into that right now. It's, it's, it's calling uh, out the narrative, wonderful. And also sometimes annoying to watch a movie with him. Cause he'll be like, I'm sorry, I got to pause that. Okay. That's total indoctrination right there. I'll tell you what they're, what you hear. We rewind it. Listen, did you hear that? Aha. So he'll be catch, he catches stuff I love all it the time and it's super cool. And, I'm, and it's always, you know, very rarely do I have to go, actually not buddy. That's, that's truth. What is like it is? I'm like, yeah, I'll, let me explain it to you. But most, most of the time I'm just like, wow, I didn't, I didn't catch that myself. You're right. Yeah, that's it. But so you've subtle. tuned him. You've tuned him to it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's where we want them. We want them to be able to navigate. Like you said, at the beginning of this conversation, we don't want to shelter them and hide them from the world. I want them to have the full breadth of experience out there to, to climb the mountains and, and raft the streams and, and do all of that and hang out with kids that they like and don't like and have all those experiences of all the different challenging archetypes that are available out there. Um, but I also don't want them to get caught up in the mind traps that most of our children are caught up in right now. And that's a lot of that we can owe to either their, their school or social media um, where they are trying to gain attention and fill that void of love that they didn't get from typically from dad. That's most common that, uh, uh, you know, that men are just so detached from their value as a nurturer that they have just fallen into role, role of provider only. And uh, that does great damage to a child when they don't have that to, to see that side of dad or they're the other way. They're, they're the, you know, the, the culture that I, escaped, which was the new age cult, um, where fathers are being so feminized that they're, they're shamed anytime that they become strong with their, with their child. Mm -hmm. And at, uh, both of my boys, when they got about four years old, um, 
particularly my first son, I realized I'm like, like we've read all the damn conscious parenting books and we're trying so hard to do this thing. And we lived in a super uber spiritual place in California called Oh Hi California. Oh yeah. And, um, and so everybody was on this, you know, this is how you do it. You know, the kids hitting you in the face and you're going, I see you're angry. I see you're angry, you know, and how am I and, not fulfilling you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so one day I just was like, I'm done. This is not working. And this kid is not going to run our life. And I, thankfully my son had another little buddy who we were able to look at that family and go, that's what not to do. They'll be like, we all go out to dinner, their first dinner in three months. And the kid decides he wants to go after 20 minutes. And it's like, oh, he really needs to go. He's very sensitive, a lot of energy in here. <laughs> and then be like, they're gone. And we're like, my wife and I are sitting there going, wow. Right. They took their food to go and they left because they're five-year-old kids that it was time to go. That's amazing. It looks crazy when you have enough of a relief yeah. to look back from just to a few feet away. So I finally one day just said, um, and I'll, I'll tell you the short story. Um, it's worth repeating, especially to another father. Uh, I was watching... Uh, my wife just the other day suggested it might be the, the movie called Buck. Maybe it was Buck. It's a movie about a man who trains wild Mustangs and a documentary. And I remember watching that being, it changed my life because, you know, in one minute he'd, he'd encounter this wild Mustang that was just bucking and like, you're not getting anywhere near me, dude. And in 10 minutes, the horse would be literally bowing and the guy would jump on it bareback and be riding this horse, this wild Mustang. And I was like, as he do that and and then i became aware of the horse his demeanor it's like that's interesting like you could feel that the horse never its whole whole life was about trying to survive trying to avoid predators everything was a predator it didn't have it, it never had an alpha something that was stronger than it but didn't want to kill it and you could almost feel the horse take a breath, like there's something out there more powerful than me that just wants to ride me and not hurt me. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that's when I went, thank God I have a, a wife that doesn't stop me from being a man, you know, because I said, sweetheart, something's going to change. Everything's gonna, it's about to change. Because what? <laughs> I, go, I said, um, I'm not going to raise my boys to, I said, when a child is aware that they can manipulate the two pillars of their lives, the two people who came together and made them. When a child is aware that I can manipulate these two big people, what else happens in that child? They don't feel safe because then they're thinking, if I'm smarter than these two and I can just make a sound, make them move whenever I want them to, who has my back? I said, that's what right. It's just me. It, I'm just all by myself. They're behaving the way they're behaving out there. They don't feel safe. They don't have fathers that take care of business that are, you know, a balance. And I mean, balance, uber loving, uber sensitive, uber caring and fierce. My kids last night, we said too many times go to bed because I had a dentist appointment at 830 this morning. Hmm. So they had to go to bed at an hour. They're not used to going to bed, particularly in and they're just up there chattering, chattering, chattering. Right. And the light's still out because it's yeah. still summer and all that. Eight times later, I'm like, done. And I go up and I grab everything that's dear to them. <laughs> you know, and I said, you've lost it for a week. That's yep. it. And they got Simple. the first thing that this morning when they got up, they saw me and they go, dad, I'm really sorry about last night. How long did we lose it for? I said, for a week. They go, okay. 
you know, but it's like, no, it's just like, you're, and I, and I explain to them, I say, you understand it's, it's frustrating. We don't want the last thing that we say to you at night to be us yelling, go to bed. I don't, I don't want that to, to be it. I want you to respect our words when we say, you know, finish reading your book and go to bed. We want you to honor that. But when I, hour later, when I hear, well, what is that up there? Oh my God, they're still awake. That's right. And I go up there and I listen to your door and you're still awake. That's disrespectful because you agreed. You said, okay, we set down a rule and you, and you didn't listen. And that's not respectful. So we're really big on respect and integrity of our word. And so when they lose something because they didn't keep their word, they, they don't fuss about it because they're like, their word's important to them. So they're like, we deserve it. Awesome. Well, you know, too, if you, if you get into your kids and, and they give you one of these things where it's like, if you wanted to raise your voice, you could probably amp, amp that energy level up as high as you want and they can match it or not. And they they'll lose. They're smaller. But if you told them in a whisper that you're really disappointed in them. Oh yeah. That's the end. I mean, that was the end for me. If, if my dad were to come to me and tell me he was disappointed and then I let him down, oh, yeah. he could say that as quietly as he wanted. And I would hear oh, yeah. it like a gunshot. Right. And so it's just a misbalanced power. There's a guy that I interviewed. His name is Mark Hout. You may be familiar with his story. He was uh, arrested in Philadelphia for defending his child mm -hmm. uh, on the streets. There was He was a pro-life activist. He was out praying outside of an abortion clinic and had a 70-year-old man saying the worst things that you can imagine a grown-up saying to a boy and to another man. And he shoved the guy. Uh, and charges were declined by the uh, local the prosecutors. And then the DOJ, the FBI, came and arrested him with a, with a team of people with rifles. Yeah. And he has a group that's called the Kingsmen. And he's a, he's a very Catholic man. He's a very devout man. He's got a bunch of kids. I think he has nine or 12. I can't remember, but it's a lot. And it was, it was an impressive number, whatever it was. And his, his principles of leadership for men, because he, he does a men's retreat and they teach yeah. outdoor wilderness skills and things like that. You mentioned the, the balances and what he says, there's three of them. Let's see how they ring to you. He says the man's role is protector, provider, and leader. And I'd never heard him in three simple things. Sometimes a good number like that, three is pretty easy. Mm -hmm. It's it's stable, but mm -hmm. it, it is essentially the things that you're describing right there, what that alpha looks like. Powerful, but also mm -hmm. benevolent. And maybe that's a lot of what people are forgetting that masculinity is supposed to have, you know, a lot of those things. It, it, it's, the whole, it's the whole idea when you look at uh, guys like, uh, David Grossman and his on killing, you know, the, the, the sheepdog concept that the three, it's, it's obviously a very simplified worldview, the sheep, the, the shep or the sheep, the wolf and the, and the sheepdog, but the sheepdog looks a lot like a wolf and that's why it scares people, yeah. but it's benevolent and it has yeah. protection in mind. And so people want to, you know, they, they look around and they go, Oh, it's the teeth that are the problem. No, no. Mm -hmm. It's the behavior with the yeah. teeth turns out to be the case. Well, I, I agree with those three distinctions and I would probably add a fourth and that's some, somewhere in the, in the realm of nurturing, because I think that there are a lot of fathers who, who, um, are only show the leader side, only show the, the provider side. And those are incredibly important. Um, but what I found with my boys, um, hopefully one day you'll meet my boys. They really are special, special kids. And, um, and, they, what I love about them is we can't go through an airport without them saying, dad, look how cute that baby is. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're, they are already. And when I, they did a, what they call their dream board um, exercise during summer camp and they came back and they both had on their, their dream boards that part, one of the things that they want to be when they grow up is an awesome dad. And, and that just made me so happy. That that's that it wasn't football player or you know it was like an awesome dad that was right he doesn't want to be a cowboy or a gunfighter or an right. astronaut 
Right. They're, they're, and that's an achievable thing, by the way, an awesome dad. It's truly achievable. And, and when you see them with other children, I know what kind of dad they're going to be. You know, I have a, I have a, my, my creative partner has a six-year-old and every now and then um, when she's out of school and, and um, he and her mother are separated and she can't take care of her, he'll have to bring her here for a day. And my boys take care of her all day long, six-year-old little girl. And you know, eight hours, nine hours, and they're with her all day long. We don't have to even question, you know, they're taking such good care of her, feeding her. And, and that's how you raise a good little man. Um, and because um, one thing that a lot of men have missed out on is emotional literacy mm-hmm. of understanding, not just being the tough guy. You know, I mean, we have that side of us too. You know, we're full... I was a motocross racer. My, both my boys raced BMX. And so we're full on contact extreme sports on one hand. Um, and, and then there's a, a real soft side that I think men need to, um, and I don't mean soft as in weak, I mean soft as in fiercely powerful. Um, but having that ability to be sensitive enough to, um, to have intimate connections. You know, when you look at your child, do they see the love in your eyes? Do you know how to express to them when you're, when you're going through a hard time? I've had to sit down with my boys. There was the first time I cried with them was powerful because I, I got a little too aggressive with punishment one day. And I realized a lot of it was just me. Um, this is probably five years ago. And I was just having a really frustrating day. And, um, and the thought that I would be um, that I would take some of that out on the two beings that I love more than anything in this world crushed me. Mm-hmm. And I had to go, I just went in to, to apologize, but then I felt these tears well, and I thought, oh, I got to shut this off. And I went, well, there I go. That's what men do. And instead right. I went, no, let them flow. And I remember my boy just looking up at me like, wow, daddy's crying. And this I must said, be important. I, I said, I, I, daddy's growing too. Yeah. Daddy's, daddy's learning too, buddy. I don't have it all figured out. I'm doing my best and life is an ongoing process of learning. You never stop learning. And, um, and I just learned a big lesson and uh, I'm really, really sorry for yelling at you. You didn't deserve that. That was, that was something that um, you didn't deserve. And that'll stay and, with them for, for and, a very long time. Well, well, uh, they'll wait, probably wait. always remember that. I remember my dad going over the, you know, I probably earned whatever punishment I got. I'm, and he, he'll listen to this. So that's even funnier, but you know, I, there was a couple of times when I definitely earned a throttling, whatever it was, <laughs> you know, whether verbal or physical. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still remember him taking a knee and, and coming in and apologizing. Yeah. And now my, Which, now I, you know, my, my kids do that with each other. Now my sons almost never fight. And when they do, I just, was it yesterday or the day before that, um, yeah, I think it was yesterday, as a matter of fact. My 12-year-old, it's very rare. He's such a patient big brother. My little one is, is um, he can be annoying because he's just like, he's just filled with energy. So so like after a full day with him, there's a point when you're like, <laughs> wow, you know, because he's just questions and bah, bah, he's full out and he's he's the one that's rough all the time and he's pinching and he's, you know, just having fun. It's always, a, always in good humor. Right, but, but, but he's getting that you reaction. Got, you got to set him straight. Yeah. You have to be like, enough, cool it, my body, you know, boundaries. And so my older son got to that point 
but he really unleashed. He was in the backseat of the car and he really, it's rare to hear him be like, stop it. You know, like, and then, and then my wife and I were just like, yeah, it's so rare because his, his name is Azai. It's so rare that Azai goes there, but we're just like, we don't want to interfere. We want them to be able to work it out. And then a minute later, he's like, I'm sorry, Zuri. He goes, I just really, it's like, there's what you did, but it was also, you know, something else that I, he, he was able to put it together to tell his brother that was an out of proportion reaction to what you did. And it was it's a really sophisticated thing for a 12 year old. Really? Like I, and I'm just like, my wife and I are sneaking look. Like how many grownups do we know that can't do that? Few, <laughs> very few. But that's what, I, that's what you show them by being that because there's no better way to teach your children than by being that because they watch and they emulate everything. You know that, right? The kids watch and emulate everything you do. And, um, and so if you are someone who hasn't grown up and your behavior is bad, well, then that's what you're passing on to your kids. And that's the beauty of having children is it's, it's it, nothing forces you into self-examination more deeply than the reflection of your children. And especially when you really care about that, it, you know, there are a lot of dads that are like, screw it. I am who I am. They're going to be who they are or whatever. But it's like, no, I, I had a lot of stuff that I was determined to change within the lineage of my family. I come from a dysfunctional family and and there were a lot of behavior patterns that I was committed to not instilling in my children. And, and I didn't have an example of how to, you know, of, uh, of how to behave like a man when I was growing up, raised by a mom, two sisters and a gay brother. So I had a lot of feminine input, which I'm grateful for, but I had to learn how to become my own man, learn what that is. And, uh, and, so it's, you know, I made a this decision. I'm like, this, I don't believe that this shit's in my genes. I don't believe I have to pass this on. This is a behavioral, this is a pattern, this is a habit and habits are changeable. So let me change my habits and trust that in changing my habits, my sons won't pick up my bad habits. And the few that I, I did I have witnessed in them, I've consciously, they've shown me, they've been that mirror for me to say, oh, I wonder where they learned that one from, uh-oh. And then I'm like, okay, let me undo that. We can undo it. We can actually call it forth and say, you know that thing you did? That's, you actually got that from me. I did? You did. I've been doing that my whole life. And um, you helped me see it. Thank you. Let's change it together. You and think a lot of parents do that? I, I just hope a lot more do. I don't know how many do. There's a lot of wonderful parents out there, but... I, I, I don't think enough um, take parenting on um, as mentor, as, as um, they do it as authority. And that's can be detrimental because, you, again, you don't want your child just bowing to authority. You want to take it on in the, like, I was married once before my, my current marriage. And, and it was interesting. We kind of fell into a pattern of kind of competing against each other. Hmm. Well, you did this. Well, I did that. Well, you did that. You know, it's this whole thing. Like, and there's scripture got, about this, you know? Yeah. The house divided will not stand. That's right. When I got there, into there's my, a lot of truisms in there. A <laughs> lot of it. When I got into this, the, my current marriage, um, I learned from my first marriage. And I said, one thing, and I just, my wife is just, she's just an extraordinary human being. So it makes it easier. She's taught me a lot. Um, but I said, 
let's never forget that we're on the same team. Above all, because when I tell you something that might sound like criticism, when you tell me something that might sound like criticism, if we can just remember it's because you love me and it's not because you're not happy with me, but it's because you see something that I can't see. Um, or I see something that maybe you can't see, that um, a, a, a more effective way of behaving in our lives that might, that might actually serve us. We want the best for each other. We're not trying to win. I don't want to win above you. I'm not competing against you. I want us to win. You know, it's a, it's, it's a cooperative sport we're playing. It's not a competitive sport. And if we can just remember that, then when that stuff comes up that, when, that could be offensive, if we can just remember, she's only saying this because she wants her lives to work. And that thing I do, that habit I do, isn't the most optimal way to live. You know, and it might be, you know, like I think the last thing I brought up to my wife was I'm like, do you notice the pattern in our life where we clean up the whole house, get everything, we go through a whole weekend of just making everything clean and then everything piles up and everything piles up. And then four weeks later, let's go through the whole cleaning again. Mm -hmm. And I said, wouldn't it be better if we just kind of cleaned up every day a little bit? instead of the, taking the whole weekend out once or every month or three. And can we see how this actually reflects on our lives, right? Our taxes get all behind and then we spend a month trying to get all our taxes paid and caught up and everything falls behind again. I said, you see, this is kind of a pattern. How you do one thing is how you do a lot of things. This is a pattern in our lives. And, um, you know, are we willing to try something new? And that is just like set some rules and, and, and stick to them. You know, like if we say we have a shoe closet, every time you take off your shoes, put them in the damn closet, all of us. <laughs> Otherwise, one pair gets left out and someone goes, oh, that's a good spot for it today. Suddenly there's eight pair of shoes sitting there by the front door that we trip over. Yep. Like, do, do we recognize that that might seem like a mundane, meaningless little thing, but do we understand that by being aware of that pattern, that larger patterns in our life get taken care of, the more we're efficient with each little choice we make in our daily duties. And, you know, those conversations we can have as a team to, to optimize the experience of our lives. And if more couples worked together that way, instead of just feeling like we're, I'm just going to criticize you, now. you, you just stop doing this and stop doing that. Um, but again, you know, the same way I mentioned in the beginning, of this is to teach, to work with each other, even as couples through what we want collectively what we want instead of what I want. I want you to be this way. But look, if you're that way, it creates this circumstance and it moves us further away from our goal, which is being in love and continuing to fall in love. And, 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 you know, it's, we've been together 20 years and, you know, it's when I leave and I'll be, you know, leaving uh, Saturday for event. And I guarantee you before I catch the plane, I'll be te texting her to tell her how much I miss her. You know, and I never knew, Kyle, that that was possible because my experience of relationships growing up was they're really exciting for a few months and then they get old. I never knew it was possible because I never saw my mom in a real relationship. I didn't know it was possible to continue to fall in love. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been watching The Kyle Serafin Show, generally streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, although today we are doing a tape delay and you have been watching an interview with my new friend, 
Mickey Willis. I hope you really enjoyed that. I really did as well. There is a part two, and it will be tomorrow. So tune in tomorrow to hear that. Before we go, we want to say thank you to um, all of you for watching. Please make sure that you hit the like down there on the Rumble channel. You can always follow us, stream live, rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. We'll read you a five-star review when we get back on the air and we're doing them again live. I do want to say thank you to my producer, Ryan Matta. You can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Matta Media, M-A-T-T-A, and you can find his show on Rumble at LFA TV. He does the show called Matta Effect. Please check him out, and uh, we're really appreciative that he was able to do this. I also want to say a big thank you to my guest, Mickey Willis. Here he is right there. You can follow him uh, before the next episode at Mickey Willis, M-I-K-K-I-W-I-L-L-I-S, Mickey Willis. And you can also see him on his uh, channel over here, which is Plandemic 3 Movie, at Plandemic 3 Movie. You can find that on Twitter, and you can follow them. There are plenty of little cuts there if you want to get a taste of it and go watch Plandemic 3, The Awakening, The Great Awakening. Uh, we don't cover it nearly as much as we could in this entire interview because we got so distracted with things about life and things that are true about all of us. But I think that is Mickey's superpower. That is his talent. So please tune in again tomorrow to see the second half of this interview, and we really appreciate you guys. We will see you soon. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.